Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today's interview features Dr. Andrew Whitehead. Dr. Whitehead is Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. He is a leading scholar of American Christian nationalism. Uh, He's written, along with Sam Perry, the book Taking America Back for God. He's also written a new book called American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. And in this interview, we're going to talk about the contents of his book and explore some of the ways that he feels that American Christian nationalism is not only hurting the church, but also distorting the witness and the ministry of the church here in America and abroad. And so without further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Andrew Whitehead. So how would you say that Christian nationalism uh, threatens the church? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can kind of come at this question. And so in the book and in my thinking right now, I, I think of it in terms of how Christian nationalism really kind of upholds these larger kind of structural and social trends that I think really does harm to the Christian church as an institution. Um, And we can talk about kind of for individual Christians, how Christian nationalism can kind of warp how we see the world, how we see our neighbors, those types of things. But I think when we talk about the church as an institution and then as organizations, you know, Christian nationalism is obsessed with and and really kind of supports the idolization of, um, as I talk about, power, fear, and violence. And so for the Christian church to exist kind of in its in our neighborhoods, in our communities, um, when it's seeking self-interested power, when it's sharing these messages of fear and threat, how we should basically, you know, batten down the hatches and, you know, not necessarily love our neighbors, but just really try to to fight against the world. And it's always a battle or how those things, you know, this fear of losing self-interested power and feeling this threat from the culture, how that can really turn to violence and how our Christian churches maybe don't enact violence, but um, move along with society and not standing against violence against different minority groups, whether it's racial or ethnic or gender and sexuality or whoever, not taking a stand against those, but maybe just turning a blind eye, which is just as dangerous, right? Just as harmful. And so I think that's the way, and, and through these different idols of power, fear, and violence, Christian nationalism threatens the witness of the Christian church, where we have folks leaving and and maybe not coming back, and maybe ever, because they hear the teachings of Jesus, but they don't see those lived out. They don't feel like there's this, you know, connection between how the how the Christian church as an organization is functioning versus what they hear or have heard, you know, maybe growing up on Sundays about the ways that Christians should love their neighbors. Yeah, certainly in my experience, uh, pastoring a church, uh, we've heard from hundreds of people over the last four or five years, basically saying that they had checked out a church or been a part of a church, but because of the fear mongering, the the constant outrage, mm. uh, the the toxic anxiety that was being stirred up, they they just could not square that with you know the teachings of Jesus, who who kept mm. saying things like "Fear not," right? I'm always with you. <laughs> Right. The world is always collapsing, but fear not because I'm always with you. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that sense, it's certainly for a people who are 
called to present the way of Jesus, mm. power, fear, and violence, at least toxic power, fear, and violence are contrary to those ways. Yeah. And we've seen that in a variety of ways. Talk a little bit about uh, the infamous January 6th. So January 6th, many of us were watching images of Jesus saves, signs, crosses, mm-hmm. people praying, even singing worship songs next to gallows. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how that is working in Christian nationalist spaces. Yeah, definitely. So this, um, you know, as I was sitting there and I'm sure many of us had similar experiences, right? Like we're, we're sitting at home, right? Because COVID was still very much a part of our daily lives. And on maybe social media, you start to see pictures and video of this, and then you turn on the news. And I remember just kind of sitting there experiencing it as it was happening and thinking, okay, here's a here's one of those hinge moments, right? This is different. And so now we just need to see what happens here. And so the way I like to describe it is that, right, the video watching what's happened is, is always shocking. But as you described it, I can't say that it was surprising, you know, to see the Christian symbolism and imagery intertwined with the violence and um, these other kind of elements of January 6th. We've, we've seen these things as a part of our culture and, and within the American public, and now here they were coming to the fore. Um, and so, you know, it was a small number of Americans that went there, but they went back to communities and back to congregations where they're basic understanding and belief about how to be, um, and, and two, we didn't gather any data of people at January 6th. So I can't speak empirically about, you know, were they embracing Christian nationalism or not, but looking at the videos that they posted, the prayers that they prayed and and did videos of, right. All these things kind of give us evidence of, of at least some of those folks, why they were there and how they were seeing it. And in their own words, we're saying things like, well, this country was given to us by God. And if we don't fight for it, who will? And we're going to lose it. And we're losing this country. So you, f- you hear the, and feel this threat. And so, you know, as we gather data soon after in, in survey data of the American public soon after January 6th, we, there are some really interesting findings. And I think there's a couple elements that we see wrapped up within Christian nationalism that really made January 6th in some ways possible, right, for this kind of explosion. And, and again, Christian nationalism, because it is diffused across the population, it really creates fertile soil for extremism, like we saw on January 6th, to take root. So again, it's not a majority of Americans that are going to Capitol, but there are a lot of Americans that implicitly, you know, accept or at least will allow for some of those extremist beliefs, and that's what's dangerous. So one of them was the big lie, right? So no evidence of wrongdoing in the vote. It wasn't stolen from Donald Trump, but that belief is strongly associated with Christian nationalism. So we we survey the American public, and for those that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, over half say that, yeah, this election was stolen. So that's a big part of why they were there, um, the folks that were there, obviously. There's an association between Christian nationalism and political violence. So when we ask questions like, um, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to, to take our country back. When we ask that question of Americans, those that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, they're much more likely to agree or strongly agree with that statement, that violence is an acceptable political behavior. When we ask questions about QAnon and the belief that, I mean, we even ask explicitly, like, do you believe their elite Democrats are involved in a sex child sex trafficking ring? Um, Americans that embrace Christian nationalism, much more likely to say, yes, that's true. When we look 
at kind of the siloing of the American media landscape, where folks go to get their news um, is a very particular place. And we're, we're essentially in echo chambers. It is true on the left, but especially on the right, where some of these views and beliefs, you know, that gave rise to January 6th were, you know, broadcast and supported. Um, and even with some of the lawsuits, you know, that were made against some of those news organizations, hearing that they didn't even necessarily believe it internally, but they were broadcasting that stuff. And so that really made a difference. And so, you know, those elements of belief in the big lie, political violence, QAnon, um, the fracturing of our media sources, all of those really create this stew and Christian nationalism is intertwined with every single one. And so to understand January 6th, you know, as I talk about in the book, it's, it's not that Christian nationalism was the only explanation, but we can't understand it without at least looking at Christian nationalism because it's, it's a theology, a political theology that essentially gave space and, and laid the groundwork for that extremism um, to give root. And it gives theological cover for those that went and attacked. They believe they're doing God's will. And that logic is there. Like, why would we let democracy stand in the way of what the all-knowing, all-powerful God they believe has told them this country should should do and look like. So democracy itself can be set aside if they believe they're doing the will of God. And I think that's where Christian nationalism really can be dangerous. Yeah. And it, it, on the ground, all those things tend to merge together. So when we're, Mm. you've done such a great job, just even kind of deconstructing or deciphering what we saw as images of January 6th. Mm. Uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and less than half a mile from my house is uh, the FBI building here. Mm. And the QAnon shaman was processed in that building months ago. And in fact, when uh, the FBI investigated the Mar-a-Lago thing, uh, there was about 30 or so men and women in front of the FBI building in my neighborhood yeah, uh, with AR-15s marching up and down the street, and when they were interviewed, and I, I talked to some of them, but when the uh, when the news reporters came, they said they were awaiting uh, the president, in this case Trump, their president's orders, and and then, so on the ground, right, and, and theologically, you're right to say that Christian nationalism provides theological cover, if not outright endorsement for that level of behavior. Yeah. Uh, many of those people were in church on Sunday. Yeah, right. And you use the phrase echo chamber. So many of us listening were wondering what happened to our friends and family. We're wondering why they're screaming at the top of their lungs now, why they're constantly anxious. And some of it is that echo chamber effect where they're hearing fear-mongering, anxiety-driving statements from news outlets or um, movement leaders. Mm-hmm. But the echo chamber also propagates that in their Sunday school class and their Bible study, yeah, where right. they're saying the same things over and over again, or, or at least not condemning it. Right, exactly. And whether or not their pastor says something for it from the pulpit, if the pastor says nothing from the pulpit, there's tacit approval, at least implied. Yeah. And so the echo chamber continues. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 that promotion of, or at least tacit approval of violence really does impact people, really does impact their safety Mm. throughout, not only recently, but throughout human history. Talk to us a little bit in your book. You have got this whole chapter dedicated to the sword and the way of the sword. Talk about how the way of the sword threatens uh, the mission of the church. Yeah, definitely. So this was a really interesting chapter for me to write and to think through, right? Because as we think about politics, um, kind of 
in its ideal form, right? All politics is power, right? Because power is the ability to get others to do what you want despite resistance. And so if we pass a law or a resolution or anything, that is power at, at work. Um, and so then how do Christians think about and understand power? Because um, the kind of culture warring of the, you know, Christian right just in the last 40 to 50 years, right? The idea is to take as much political power as possible to then be able to enact what we see as a, a good Christian kind of outlook for the country. And, and there are those that are still intent on doing that, obviously, today. And so it isn't as though Christians should just opt out and say, you know, we shouldn't even be involved politically, power, all power is evil. And so we just have to just withdraw completely. You know, there are some that have written in that sense, kind of this third way, you know, that we just shouldn't take sides at all. But a lot of times the ability to choose not to take a side is from a position of privilege, right? So as a a white male who's native born, it's easy for me to say, you know, I'm just not going to be involved politically because all the political systems are kind of set up to, you know, essentially work in my favor. So I think, you know, in people that I've been reading and especially from those people who are writing as minorities, whether it's you know, gender minorities um, and, and women, you know, who have been outside kind of the halls of power, you know, from the start of our country up until, you know, the 20th or early parts of the 20th century were not allowed to vote. So in thinking of their experiences or especially for racial and ethnic minorities, they have been marginalized explicitly by, you know, politics and, and political power in our country. And so hearing and reading about their experiences, you know, is helping teach me to say, okay, if I'm going to be Christian in my neighborhoods and in my community, where that means, you know, loving and supporting my neighbors and, and being about their flourishing, um, that's necessarily going to place me on a certain political side because they, by just existing, are placed, you know, on a certain political side. And so it isn't as though we should abdicate power. But I, as I try to talk about in the book and distinguish, is self-interested power. So is it political power just to serve our in-group and us, in quotes? Um, Or is it power executed to and self-sacrifice for the good of all, right? Is it about the flourishing of all people? And so that's the type of, I think, power that the church should be about. Because as Jesus teaches us, it isn't about, you know, the threatening, the use of power, whether it's violence or otherwise, over people but locating ourselves with the marginalized. That's where God went. That's where Jesus went, you know, being with them. And so, you know, in the book too, I talk about a couple ways this can happen as, as application points. So one is defending um, religious liberty, right? So the, the right of all Americans to be religious or not, um, we shouldn't just look to benefit our own, you know, Christian group or Christians in general, but that to be American, you don't have to be Christian, um, that we should support the right of all people. Because as we oppose, you know, certain religious minorities building, you know, a building in our communities, I don't think that they're feeling the love of Christ in that situation, right? So defending religious freedom, I think, is key. And then to access to the democratic process. And are we allowing all Americans um, to have an equal say? And are we making it easier for them to, you know, be a part of of this country and what this country is about, I think, you know, those are are key ways that we can be a part of being Christian and and executing a uh, self-sacrificial power 
that we're going to leverage the privilege that we have as, for me, a white Christian man, can I leverage that to then benefit those who have historically been outside um, and placed on the outside and marginalized by, by power structures in our country? Yeah, I love that you are making sure to point out that the answer here is not run away and hide. It's to be involved, but to be involved with the true power, which is the power of the lamb. So mm. anyone who's read the book of Revelation, there's two key figures and there are two mm. key power players. Mm-hmm. One's the beast or dragon and the other is the lamb. And the whole, what I think is a satire on the power structures of this world in Revelation is that the beast and the dragon look like they win, or they should win. Right. But it ends up being the lamb who was slain, who truly wins. And so there's, there's cross power, which can only deal death. And then there, excuse me, there's sword power, which can only deal death. And there's cross power, which brings to resurrection life. And for mm. people of the cross, it's whatever power we've been given mm. to steward in service of others with a specific eye to those who have not been granted power or right. who are not being listened to. And yeah. I, I love that you're saying that. The other thing I, I want to just notice here in this conversation, especially around American Christian nationalism, Religious liberty, you've mentioned it a couple of times, pluralism or religious pluralism. It's one of the core values uh, in, in these here United States. Could you talk for a moment? We, we don't just mean like, quote unquote, different religions. We also mm-hmm. mean within the Christian tradition, a freedom mm-hmm. to practice. Within our own Christian tradition, there are many different denominations. Right. So religious liberty is also the freedom to be a Mennonite, to be a Baptist, to be a Lutheran, to be an Anglican, to be a Presbyterian, to be Orthodox, Coptic, Armenian Orthodox. And so when we're talking about one of the failures of American Christian nationalism, we're noticing, it sounds like you're noticing that the failure of uh, to, to elevate pluralism, that the Christian in the Christian nationalism term will eat itself up. Mm, mm-hmm. That when, when, and actually, I, I'd be interested to hear your perspective. When you hear in America Christian nationalists advocating for Christian nationalism, which Christian are they advocating for? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key question. And I don't know that I can answer that for them because I think the answer is when they get right down to it, they don't know. Like they're not able to distinctly say what this will look like. So uh, a really, interesting book that kind of highlights this historically, Kevin Cruz's um, One Nation Under God, right? So in the moves in the mid 20th century to put, uh, you know, these were Supreme Court, you know, cases as well, but when they were advocating Bible readings or prayers and the Supreme Court said, okay, in a public school, you can't, you can't do that. Um, really a lot of the fighting for those on the ground that were saying, well, we need to keep, keep Bible readings. We need to keep prayers in school. Well, then it was, well, which prayer? Right. And as they put one prayer forward, there was another a Christian prayer. There were other Christian groups that were like, well, that doesn't necessarily align with our beliefs or, you know, which um, version of the Bible would we say this is the version? I mean, there's no way the state should do that. Christians can't even and don't. And I think it's probably good, too, right, that there are different translations and different things being you know advocated for or supported by different denominations and groups. And so that's just a part of our faith and throughout history, right, that there have been different flavors and different expressions of the Christian faith. And so I think, yeah, the short answer is there, there isn't a particular one and they can't. And I think it's just a function of, of the historic nature of Christianity too. It just is impossible to actually say this will be it. So when we're talking about the Christian in Christian nationalism empirically, um, what we see is it, it tends to just be a very 
ethnocentric and politically and religiously conservative expression of it. So it's a very particular expression of Christianity. And I like to kind of highlight that and, and really make that clear to people that I'm talking with or in the book too, that there are many expressions of Christianity, but this is of a very particular type. And I think a particularly damaging one to living toward the flourishing of all people around us. I think it really tends to just draw people in and self-protection and it harms those that I think Jesus came and and has kind of told us as Christians that we should be living for um, and sacrificing for. Yeah, one of my favorite things to ask people who are advocating for Christian nationalism is if they'd be comfortable with a Mennonite running the Department of Defense. Right. <laughs> yeah. For those listening, uh, Mennonites in the Anabaptist tradition, which is a complete pacifism, anti-violence, they would yeah. defund right. the Department of Defense. The budget would be zero dollars. And taxes would go down, folks. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, which denomination are we going to fund or officially recognize? Yeah. Um, usually we sure. just mean mine. <laughs> yes, exactly. That. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, Andrew, on the ground, uh, many of us have family members. We've got friends who are who are receiving this as not as isolated individual moments, mm-hmm. but as kind of a wave or or just even a cultural reality, uh, even in our churches. And one of the things I really appreciate about your book is you, you give some very practical, like you give a practical field guide for those of us who are trying to even identify on the ground. Is this Christian nationalism? Is this patriotism? Is this, what is this? Mm-hmm. And uh, would you just mention a few things that, that might be helpful for us, maybe when we go with our family member or friend, when we go with them to church or to their club or whatever, uh, what would be some things that we could notice and say, oh, th- this might be propagating Christian nationalism in their life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm glad that you appreciated that part because that, you know, it's in many ways the most important part to kind of write or at least lay out there, but also so difficult because there are so many different forms and there are things that I, you know, don't mention in the book that are obviously a part of it. But, you know, there's a number that I lay out and I think I'll just run through a couple of them really quickly that um, the way that I think about it can happen at the congregational level you know, as these organizations, how, how we structure them and, and what happens there, but then also at the personal level, as we're interacting, like you said, with family members and, and for me too, right? My own family members, there are many that embrace, you know, various aspects of Christian nationalism. So as I think and work and play with them um, in daily life, like what does that look like? Um, so yeah, one, one thing that I highlight is the American flag at the front of the sanctuary, right? And so many would be like, well, what's the problem with that? And so then I say, well, um, take it out of the main sanctuary and see what happens. And then you'll know what that flag being there represents and means to f- folks. Um, and it isn't as though we need to be ashamed that we were born by historical accident in the United States. We need to think clearly about, well, what does that flag at the front of the sanctuary represent? Why is it there? And if you weren't born here by historical accident, what, what would it mean to see a particular country's flag at the front? And if there is a big fight about taking the flag down, I think that really highlights, well, is it being idolized or not? Um, This idea of of we're a Christian nation. You know, for some of my research, we went to um, different congregations that have the Celebrate um, America services around July 4th. And so, you know, I've been in a service um, where 
every worship song on Sunday morning, you know, for the July 4th, whether it was happening before, you know, on that exact day, were all about the United States. And and the only really mention of God was, hey, bless the United States. And so I was just sitting there thinking, like, we're singing worship, you know, the worship singing part of the, of the Sunday morning service. And it is all about the greatness of the U.S. And if we're going to talk about God, it's in relation to the U.S. And so that is really striking. And so to think about, well, what, what are we doing on those days? And what do those days mean? Um, I think in the, the messages that are preached from the pulpit, is it about fear of, of those on the outside and us being attacked and how we need to defend our way of life? Or you need to be afraid. You need to sense the threat that's happening around us. You know, to put it kind of generally, right, as, as you listen to these messages, is it encouraging you to embrace love and sacrifice for, for those around you and those outside the walls of the church? Um, or is it about gaining more power and control over those outside of the church? Which of those two? And I think the latter are in service of Christian nationalism to ensure that we, quote unquote, really maintain power and, and don't lose. And the former, I think, is more Christ-like. It's to sacrifice and love those around us. And so I think those in our congregations are kind of key signals that we can look for and just be aware of. But then I think among fellow Christians, you know, as I highlight in the book, these idols of Christian nationalism of power, as we talk and, and you know, interact with folks around us, is it mostly about how we Christians need to exert power over others? We need to defend our rights and, and our privilege and our history and our practices do we need to defend the faith and defend this country from attack? I think that focus on power is, is a key signal. That threat of losing access to power and self-interested power that benefits us, that focus on fear. You know, and as you can hear even in me talking, it necessarily brings up this us versus them thinking. So is it drawing lines of distinction? We are the chosen, quote unquote, and then those outside. Um, I think anything that really draws those us versus them lines is another signal. And with those, you know, desiring power, fear of losing power, that threat, us versus them thinking, then this gives rise to at least maybe not explicit endorsement, but a comfort with violence. Because if the group is going to attack us, the them, and that fear is there, then at some point, maybe we need to exert power over them. And, and historically, that has meant violence. Another signal too is nostalgia for the good old days. So if we could get back to the way things were, well, thinking about, well, were those days good for everyone? And that's where listening to voices outside of our group are important because if we think of going back, it may not have been a great time for women or minorities um, or, or folks like that. Another signal is, you know, the founding fathers or our founding documents are Christian and imbued with Christianity, which, you know, really isn't true um, if we look at their writings or we look at the documents themselves. But these myths, right, of, of who we were as a Christian nation, those are really powerful. And so thinking through those. And so those are some of the signals, I think, from person to person or even organizationally that help us kind of see the workings of Christian nationalism, both um, as it organizes our, our you know, churches and faith groups, but then too, how it organizes the ways that, or how individual Christians think about their social world and their place within it. So yeah, I explore those in the book and kind of highlight how those things work. 
but yeah, I think that hopefully will help people kind of start to notice and, and sensitize to what's happening around them that I think most of us kind of implicitly get, right? We know, okay, something's going on here, but maybe it helps kind of organize it in some way. Yeah, many of these are aspects of the cultural experience. And mm. so I've heard it said many times that for for many of us, culture is the water we swim in. We don't mm-hmm. even see it. It's just it's just right. normal. Exactly. That's cool. Uh, and we we oftentimes will use the word uh, cultural or ethnic to describe things that are not like what I'm used to. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. I'm going to go have a cultural experience as if yeah. I'm not currently living a cultural experience. <laughs> or yeah. when people say, "Let's go get ethnic food," it's like you eat. Eth- it is you. You eat yeah. food too, and it's your ethnos. It's just a different type of ethnic. Yeah, well, this is, I think, such an important point. And so why, you know, we talk about Christian nationalism as a cultural framework, right? That it is, Christian nationalism isn't just these historic Christian beliefs, but this cultural baggage that comes with it. But the degree to which it's taken for granted, that's when it's most powerful, right? And that's what you're pointing out. Like, so for us to maybe, you know, walk in the shoes of, of evangelical brothers and sisters from maybe Australia or Europe, they come here and they're like, why is, you know, this kind of stance, you know, whatever it is, stance Z, why, why are evangelicals so wound up about that? Where from their context, being evangelical has nothing to do with, you know, Z, whatever that might be. I hate to even use an actual one because for most folks it'd be like, well, of course this is important, right? So that helps us see too globally, Christians in other countries can help us see, okay, this was a part of this cultural package that was handed to me. And again, it's not as though we're evil or bad for being influenced by our culture and being socialized into a way of seeing the world in our faith. That's natural. But I think it's up to us then to do that work to try and think outside of that and to see where, you know, there are strengths, but where are the weaknesses too? Where are these things that are, you know, betraying the gospel? And I think our brothers and sisters from elsewhere can help us see those. Yeah. Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor in New York, tells this story. He's a Presbyterian. And he tells this story about this very conservative Presbyterian from the the South. And Mm -hmm. he went to the highlands of Scotland to a very conservative Presbyterian church in the Highlands of Scotland. Yeah. And he was ministering there and they were spending wonderful time together, you know, a very conservative minister in a very conservative Presbyterian church. And one day, uh, this very conservative Presbyterian minister from the South, now in Scotland, was aghast to discover that the leadership in this very conservative Presbyterian church in the Highlands of Scotland were all socialists. Right. And they were aghast to discover that he was not. Right. And they just couldn't believe because of their cultural reality and their location. And what Keller is riffing on here is that the union that we share in Christ, and for them, even as Presbyterians, mm-hmm. uh, there's still a multitude of points of distinction and separation in how we view our how we live in the world and our common life together in our in our politics and government and and i i think it's very important to point out that for many of the people that we're striving to love on and to reach is this mission field of christian nationalists it's a cultural reality so asking questions not is not theory mm-hmm. not even a political ideology it's a deep tribal identity that to call one of the components into question is to call the entire people group into question. It's, yeah. it's threatening. Yep. And just for us to remember, and you, and you, you were so wise to point on, uh, point this out that the othering that constantly happens, whether it be from the pulpit or the platform of the conference 
there's an us and we're safe and we're going to have each other's back. And then there's a them Mm -hmm. and the them is scary. And they're a threat to our way of being in the world. And we need to protect ourselves, whether it's the woke mob or the socialists, whatever Mm -hmm. they are out to get us. And the question I think for every Jesus follower has got to come down to how do we treat our enemies? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Do I power myself up in order to slay them or kick them out? Or do I not, am I not called to serve and love? And I love that you're tethering that othering tendency, that fear mongering, toxic anxiety inducing othering that's happening. You're directly tethering that to the witness of the church because the church is not to be a power up, but a power under. Right. Yeah. To serve. Um, I like that. So maybe just as we're kind of landing the plane here, you have a, a section of the book, uh, Recalibrating Our Christianity. Would you share with us just maybe some, some hope and some guidance for the future uh, for many of us who are feeling not only confused, but even, even maybe some hopelessness? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think that is important. And, and one of the notes I try to leave on in the book is, is a note of hope. And I think, you know, sometimes the, the most courageous step we can take is to cultivate hope as a spiritual practice in the face of this. Because it, for me, believe me, you know, doing the empirical research <laughs> with surveys of the American population, I can get pretty cynical where I just, I don't see a lot of hope. Um, but then when I interact with college students who are reading, you know, whether it's Take America Back for God or American Idolatry, or they're reading Kristen Dumais' work, um, Jesus and John Wayne, or these other books that are helping them make sense. Or, you know, go. I went to a denominational meeting and, and did a workshop on Christian nationalism and, and to see the work that's happening in some of these denominations. So those are the times when I do get hopeful, where I see congregations, I see individuals, see organizations really trying to wrestle with these things. And so I think in, in that way, the ways that we can and, and how we can start to recalibrate our Christianity is to look towards those expressions of Christianity. Um, and I try to share some stories of folks in the book, right, to where defending religious liberty for everyone, I think that helps set us on a path where we're loving um, our neighbors. When we cultivate empathy towards those who are not like us and try to, you know, engage with them on their terms and to listen to their stories and to not be defensive, but to see the wisdom that they have for us and and their ways of being Christian that might look different than maybe what we were handed, but, but cultivating that empathy, I think, is important. And then moving out in faith to leverage our privilege, leverage all that we've been given for those on the margins and to release control. Because I think you know, for both of us, Caleb, we're white men in um, a Christian tradition that elevates our voices and has for for centuries, um, automatically, whether maybe, you know, I can look back in my own life, at least maybe not for you, but I look back in my own life and see there are times where I probably didn't need to be elevated. <laughs> but in those moments, I was just totally. based on, you know, my identity as, as a white guy. And so, I think leveraging that and to listen to those voices and to elevate those voices or to follow their wisdom, I think, is helping me think through, you know, is it necessarily my voice or, you know, the way that I have been thinking the world or others like me, you know, laying aside those things and releasing control, I think, as a group is really important. And so, you know, one of my favorite books of the Bible is Colossians. And so, you know, there's a verse in there, 2 8, where it's, you know, talking about the, you know, the ways that the world works and hollow and deceptive philosophy, 
right? Or are we basing everything we do on Christ? And there are other parts of Colossians where when I'm reading it, um, that gives me hope where we're being encouraged um, to, you know, ensure that we, um, and to reflect on how, you know, Christ in us, the hope of glory, that's the outworking of, of what it means to be a Christian. It's a great mystery. We're not going to have all the answers. We can't think that, you know, our kind of somewhat limited historic view of the Christian faith is it, but that there's so much more out there and that, you know, Christ is working in us. And 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 through that, we can partner with with Christ and, and the Spirit to bring God's kingdom here and now, that it isn't just something that's in the future. Um, so, you know, one of the things in the book that I that I try to do is highlight, you know, a, a definition of the gospel that um, I was given kind of growing up where it was this very individual transactional thing um, where it's like, you know, you accept Jesus as Lord and then God will see you as, you know, saved. And then when you die, you're going to go to heaven. And so I think it's not as though that spiritual aspect isn't true, but to just end there is a really kind of small view of the gospel. And when we look at Jesus' first message where he came to give freedom to the oppressed and to the poor and lifting up the marginalized, all these things, he's saying these things are actually going to happen. And so that fuller vision of the gospel that when we're praying the prayer that Jesus told us that God's kingdom would come, it's not for you know some spiritual someday, but right that God's kingdom would come and we would be a part of that now. And so I think looking to some of those stories and seeing how our brothers and sisters who have operated on the margins can lead us into a Christianity that is for the flourishing of all the kingdom of God here and now, and not just to be used to protect, you know, this small group, um, self-interested type of way of living. Um, and so I think those are the things where, um, I try to try to find hope and, and recognizing that this is a journey and I, I haven't figured it out and I'm still learning and more to learn and um, that we don't have to get it right all of the time. But when we do get it wrong to try and learn from that and to move on and, and those those moments are going to be there and, and that's okay as long as we're trying to work yeah towards that future of, of the flourishing of all um, and being a part of that work here and now. So those are the hopefully the aspects that have encouraged me. And I try to encourage those that are engaging in this work because as you know, Caleb, it can be can be tough day to day, right? To engage with this and to think through it. But um, yeah, that we're a part of, of a, we have, yeah, tools within our faith that help us to see the beyond and that um, faithfulness and the here and now matters. And, and we can be a part of that together. So yeah, hopefully that, is something in line with, with hope for moving forward. I love that. Yeah. Our hope is not in political structures or sword power or even convincing people of our arguments. The hope is in Christ and he's faithful. Yeah. Love that. Andrew, where can people find you and your work? Yeah. So I, um, you know, on social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter and uh, I have like an author page on Facebook, so you can find me there. And then, yeah, the book is available kind of wherever they're sold. So it's obviously on Amazon, and I know that Baker, they list it on their uh, website as well, uh, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble, all those various online retailers. And so, yeah, thank you for yeah supporting that and, and that work, and um, love to try and stay connected with folks um, through social media. And so that's probably the best way to follow along with whether it's this book or other research that we're doing. Yeah, where to find me and interact. Cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time today. Really appreciate it, man. 
Yeah, definitely. Thanks for the work you're doing.